Hello, and welcome to the Collider.com podcast. I'm Collider.com senior editor Matt Goldberg, and with me is deputy editor Adam Chitwood. Howdy, folks. Today, we have a bonus episode of the podcast for you. We are going to be talking about our Essential 100 list that recently ran on the site. So in case you haven't seen it, basically what it was is that uh, Adam Chitwood, Dave Trembor, Haley Fouch, Vinny Mancuso, and myself got together and we each contributed about 20, uh, talked about 20 films each to add up to 100, about what are the essential films that you need to see to be uh, a, a cinephile? Like, what is your, what is a base level of knowledge? And we didn't, the goal of this list was not to be exclusionary. I think sometimes these kind of lists can be sort of like, if you haven't seen this, then you're bad. And it wasn't that at all. It wasn't that at all. What it was is in an age where, you know, you can, there's so much new stuff coming your way. What do you, what are you supposed to watch to just have a baseline level of knowledge? And so, you know, I remember when I was doing like substitute teaching, I was doing, I was talking to my students who were in high school um, about certain classic films. And I mentioned like, I'm like, who here has seen The Godfather? And like, people were like, what's The Godfather? And I'm like, oh, <laughs> that's not good. Um, and so it's like that kind of thing. And it's again, it's not to be, it's not meant to put anyone down or be like, you're bad. I haven't even seen every film on this list. Okay. It's not to say like, if you don't see all 100. You are not a cinephile. Then man. you're not a cinephile. I sorry, I still haven't seen Cleo from five to seven. Um, but it's meant to sort of be a way to provide you not just like a baseline level of knowledge, but also to sort of put you on the path to find other things. So it's like, oh, well, where do I possibly start with Akira Kurosawa? I have no idea. It's like, well, our list has seven samurai and it has Rashomon. So maybe start with those. That's not to say if you start with like high and low or Ikaru, you're doing it wrong. It's just, again, what is a good place to start? So we kind of wanted to provide a starting point for our readers yeah these are kind of like uh gateways and that's that's uh, that was a big part of how we looked at it is like okay we're not necessarily choosing the best hitchcock movies here movie here but what is a movie that exemplifies like this is what a hitchcock movie is and like rear window is a very good example of that you could have also gone north by northwest or psycho but then we had other considerations to make like when it comes to psycho we're like yes it's a great hitchcock movie yes it's iconic it's a, an iconic horror film but we have a couple other horror films i mean in narrowing the list down to 100, we could have filled the whole thing out with Hitchcock and Scorsese and Spielberg and Coen brothers. Um, but we wanted to provide as much variety as possible. And so, you know, there are only a couple of Westerns on here. That's not to say that Westerns aren't important, but, uh, you know, just kind of trying to make room for everything else. You know, the searchers is a really great Western that bridges the gap between, uh, you know, the classic Westerns and then the, uh, moving into Westerns that kind of started to acknowledge the changing landscape and, the uh, you know, start to kind of lean a bit into, maybe the racism and xenophobia of some of those earlier John Ford Westerns uh, and acknowledging that and coming to terms with heroes. And then also including like newer films like the social network, which, you know, we feel is, is 
uh, a pretty essential film to the 21st century. It speaks directly to the world we live in today and how that world has changed. Um, so we tried to provide a pretty well-rounded list, uh, you know, essentially kind of the way I looked at it was like a, a, a more curated version of the IMDb top 250. Cause when I was growing up, the IMDb top 250 was like for the couple of like really serious movie fans that I knew, uh, in high school, like the goal was to have seen all of the movies on the IMDb top 250. Now that list is voted on by users and this is skewed. Like I think Christopher Nolan movies make up like all almost all of the top 10. Uh, and that's only a slight exaggeration. But uh, we just kind of wanted to provide a starting point. And so, you know, you check out uh, Top Hat and you're like, hey, I didn't really like it. So then maybe, uh, you know, classic Hollywood musicals aren't going to be your thing. And that's fine. But Top Hat is a really great example of, uh, you know, those black and white uh, studio musicals. Yeah. I, and so, and again, like, just because something didn't make the list, that doesn't mean it is inessential. So, for instance, when it came to films about the Vietnam War, there are so many. And those are just films that are about or connected to the Vietnam War. Not films that are about, like, the psychological scars of it and, like, the way it changed America. Just films that are about the Vietnam War. Like, we could have included Coming Home. We could have included The Deer Hunter. We could have included uh, Born on the Fourth of July. We could have included Platoon. Uh, we included Apocalypse Now. Um, I think, you know, the case that we made for it was because it's the one that gets into the sort of surreal headspace of this sort of war. And like, what does it mean and how is it different than, say, you know, World War Two or, or World War One? Um, but it's not to say that, like, well, if you've seen Apocalypse Now, you did your work. The idea is, OK. What's next? What do I go to next? And if I'm interested in a certain area, what do I start with? And that was really sort of the basis of it. And so I, I don't want to. St I think the the reception of the list has been pretty popular. I haven't gotten like I expected to sort of before we publish it. I'm like, oh, I'm going to get some some angry tweets being like, why didn't you include this or an email yeah. like you didn't include that. I haven't gotten any of that stuff. I really have. And yeah. it's been pretty popular. It's been, and not to like brag or anything. I'm just, I'm glad it worked out because it took like two months of our lives. Yeah. It took a long time. We started formulating the list in the spring. Um, and then it was whittling it down. And I also think some people think like, Oh, the best way to do this is you just vote on it. And then it's the rules. And we did vote on it, but then we discussed it like, okay, well, you know, um, we have a little bit too much Spielberg on here. We don't have a ton of films directed by women on here. Um, what are some other uh, ways we can kind of branch out? And that that process was fun, I thought. That's so. That's kind of the the way we put this together. Yeah, it was. So the way that we we did it was is everyone sort of like just threw out like as many films as they could think of. Like these are my essential film. These are, these are essential. And the more other people agreed that a film was essential, the more votes it would get. Essentially essentially I'm using that word way too much. The more votes it would get. And then the films with the most votes became the, the film with the 100 most votes were the list. But then we looked at that and said, okay, this is skewing too much towards white male filmmakers, which makes sense because those are the people who have gotten to make movies. Like it's just, it's, that's the history, but that doesn't mean that we just simply need to repeat that history at the exclusion of other voices that also have something to contribute. And that's why, and I'm, and I'm glad that we talked through that final list and said, okay, you know what? Close Encounters of the Third Kind is all well and good, but it would be important for us to include um, a film like 
uh, I'm trying to think like what was sort of that we added, um, like uh, Tangerine. I think like Tangerine is a film about you know uh, trans women, um, and I think like that that is an important film to have, be- especially for where what it represents in the 21st century, being a film shot on an iPhone and sort of the democrat the further democratization of filmmaking. I think that's an important contribution. And you know what, you still get your Spielberg on this list. <laughs> you know, it's not like yeah. we forgot about Steven Spielberg. We still did Jaws, Jurassic Park, and E.T. So yeah, that's a, that's a pretty well well rounded uh, you know um, Spielberg. Yeah, you you won't read this list and be and like, Raiders. "Who's this Spielberg?" Yeah, who's this Spielberg chap? Yeah, yeah. But all of those films are important because uh, you know another reason we deem them essential is because they have been so influential to other filmmakers coming along. Uh, you watch so many films throughout the '90s, 2000s, and today. And you see a ton of shades of Jaws, of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, you watch Stranger Things, and you're like, "Yep, they also saw ET." Um, they, they, so like, these films are essential not just because they're great, not just because they were important to film history, but because they influenced filmmakers along the way. And I think that's something that is really cool: is when you start to expand your film knowledge and when you start to work backwards, then you can start to spot and see like oh wow like this filmmaker was really influenced by this film which i had never seen before but now that i've seen it i can see the direct parallels like oh he's kind of lifting from here or he's taking a lot of direct inspiration from this specific sequence or this specific scene uh from this film and that's been you know film history for quite a long time is is looking to the past and borrowing and um uh, not stealing, but, you know, homaging and, and using that as inspiration to kind of chart your own path. Yeah, exactly. Like it's, you you can only, I think sort of the difference between being like a film fan and just sort of like a fandom person is sort of, if, if your range of interest is only like, you know, I like Star Wars or I like Marvel movies. And I'm like, that's all well and good. And if that's your forte and you don't really give a shit about any of the other movies, you do you, but I will tell you this is that the people who made those, who made star Wars and made those Marvel movies do know this history. Most of them know this history <laughs> like they, and they are pulling on these things because they do care about film. They do care about something beyond just the next star Wars or the next Marvel film. And that's not saying you have to agree with them, but I think you would regain a greater appreciation of where they're coming from and your own interests. If you looked at the history of where these films are coming from. Yeah, without Steven Spielberg, there is no J.J. Abrams. In more ways than one. Yeah, exactly. Um, but it's you know, and it's it, but it's not enough to sort of like it. I would I would also say like it's you know, but you know, where does Steven Spielberg come from, and where does you know where you know, tr- chain it all back, as it were? And 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 I will also admit like this list has its own kind of shortcomings in a way, which is that film does not just exist in a bubble like um you know we could have and maybe at some point we will the influence of television is huge the influence of comics is huge the influence of radio and music is huge i mean i can you imagine you know scorsese without needle drops yeah you know yeah, and, and looking towards – I mean I was just listening to an interview with Renee Zellweger the other day, and she was talking about when she came in and read for Jerry Maguire, Cameron Crowe, and James L. Brooks, who was producing that film. Um, they were specifically looking for for um, 
for the female lead, they were looking for someone like Shirley MacLaine in the apartment. And so using those, like a lot of filmmakers use these classic films as kind of guideposts to help them like, oh, I want a character kind of like this. And then they then, um, you know, find someone who kind of emulates that and then build their own character out of it. Right. So, yeah, I, I feel like this list was our attempt to just help. Because I think we have like a lot of viewers, I mean, and readers who are maybe on the younger side. And when I younger, I meant like still in high school. And, you know, it's just it's good to have these guys. Because like, as you said, like, yes, there is like the IMDb 250. Um, and there's all of things like the like, for instance, uh, for me growing up, a, a big guide was the American Film Institute's top 100. Yeah. But the shortcoming with the American Film Institute's top 100 is that it's just American films. So it's not going to be coming with our list as well. To be honest. We tried, but we tried, man. We tried. <laughs> we tried. There's some, there there's are not in, a ton of foreign films. There's in the mood for love. There's Cleo from five to seven there. You know, I was outvoted on breathless, <laughs> but we did. <laughs> have I still, the, I still, I, I still think breathless should have been in there, but, but we, but we I'm included the 400 eight, eight. blows. So like, you know, we're our eight and a half is on there. Like we tried, man, at least we tried. <laughs> But yeah, like, I mean, someone's going to be like, where's the Polish new wave? And I'm like, I got nothing for you. <laughs> well, and that's uh, and that was a big uh, reason I was really excited to do this was because the way we watch things, things has changed so much. And I think about myself as a young, you know, burgeoning cinephile at, you know, eight, nine, ten years old in the 90s. Um, primarily the way I saw things was flipping through cable. Um, which is not really a thing a ton of people do anymore, although I still do it, uh, and going to Blockbuster and browsing the aisles. And granted, Blockbuster didn't have the um, best collection of movies, but it was a curated collection. And so, you know, you'd go down the drama aisle and they would have, you know, 50, 80 movies. And so you would kind of look at the same boxes over and over again and you would start to branch out. And, um, you know, kind of in concert with this list, I... I uh, uh, ran an interview with Bill Hader, um, who was kind enough to speak to us about uh, his own growing up as a cinephile, and he provided us with his own list of two hundred over two hundred films that inspired him to become a filmmaker, um, which is much smarter and more uh, um, uh, in depth than ours, uh, admittedly. Um, but he was talking about how um, you know he would start to look at movies at blockbuster and he would start to recognize the names of the directors and he would say oh john landis i saw that name on this movie so and i really like this movie so i want to check out this movie because it's that same guy that did this movie um and that's pretty cool and then uh you know i think he was talking about like kentucky fried movie he was like oh the zucker brothers they did airplane and then uh was it john landis who did kentucky fried movie um so yes, like yes. the that that combo and he was like oh and John Landis I know that guy from those movies so that's guiding me towards these films and with Netflix like first of all Netflix doesn't have a vast library of films anymore um, especially older films like it, I don't even 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 mean like classic films I just mean films from before like 2005 uh, there are not a ton of them on there and then it's a little you have to kind of dig to find you know the director or whatever and the interface is not as intuitive the interface of Netflix. Is is meant for you to just uh, watch whatever trailer they put together and hit play uh, as opposed to kind of looking at a cast list or director or screenwriter or anything like that. Um, 
Whereas when I was a kid, you know, I was scrolling through the aisles at Blockbuster and that's, I was making those same connections. I was saying like, oh, I watched uh, Jaws and that was Steven Spielberg. And he also did this movie E.T., which is about an alien. That might be kind of fun. And then I was like, oh, this is a lot different than Jaws. But there are still some similarities in kind of the way this movie uh, is made uh, and starting to make connections like that. And nowadays, like, I don't necessarily know how that goes. Like, how do you become a cinephile now? Like, what, how, like, how are you, how, where's the sense of discovery, I guess, is kind of my question. And I don't necessarily have a good answer. Yeah, I think sort of the sense of discovery is, the problem is that I think discovery is being pushed forward instead of into the past. So because, you know, social media has a vested interest in making you care about what's new, there's not a lot of discussion about like hey did you see double indemnity because no one's really talking about double indemnity today because why should they um but it's a really important film it's vital to sort of the history of film noir and films of the 1940s and this filmography of billy wilder like it's a big deal but like if you hop on twitter it's not like we're all talking about double indemnity we're talking about joker because joker is like the hot new thing that's coming up that's going to get all the attention and like obviously yeah it's the new thing and we'll talk about it and not to say that it's unworthy of discussion but they're like what's the instrument to send you into the past and the streaming services aren't really doing it unless you have like criterion channel like that's really the only one because that's their entire brand whereas everyone else is like oh you know look at this new netflix thing and apple's like look at our new thing and disney's like yes there's all these comforting titles you like from the you know 80s and 90s and 2000s but also you know the mandalorian is coming so it there there the these content creators have a have an interest in telling you what's new not what not what was because everyone keeps their job based on what was new um so our our hope was to give people a way to be like if i want to go into the past where do i start because it can be over it can easily be overwhelming it can really you can i think there you can look at the amount of movies that you haven't seen get overwhelmed and get discouraged you're like well i haven't seen uh eight and a half so i don't know italian cinema and i never will and fuck it and i'm not saying eight and a half is a fun time i didn't really enjoy (laughs) rewatching it but it's an important film to see and that's the other thing about this list is like i think you know, if you're going to be a serious film fan, you have to look at films beyond what's entertaining. And that may seem like a strange statement. Like, why would I want to do what, watch something that's not entertaining me? And my counter to that is that entertainment is not the highest value. Like it's very like an entertainment, like an amusement park is entertaining on some level. Like it's fun to go on roller coasters, but if you want to look at film as art, then you have to be, you have to understand that art can create different emotions from you and different reactions and teach you different things. So like, if you want to sit down with birth of a nation, you are going to hate it. It is, (laughs) it sucks. It is three hours. It is silent. And the Ku Klux Klan is the hero, but it's also responsible for like changing the language of cinema and the way like it, it is basically the, the first blockbuster in cinema history. So if you want to understand history of cinema, you kind of got to grit your teeth and be like, this fucking sucks, 
but I'm going to learn something even if I also recognize that the story and themes of this film are utterly repulsive. Yeah. 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 Well, I, I, I mean, I think it's interesting. I mean, you're talking about the criterion channel, um, in terms of like discovering, like just, uh, like how to watch these films nowadays, the criterion channel is a subscription that you have to pay for. And so, you know, that's an added expense. And, and like, when I was a kid, I watched movies on cable because my mom paid for cable and I got movies at Blockbuster because my mom bought the movies at Blockbuster. But like my mom was probably definitely not going to be like, oh, you know what I want as a subscription to the Criterion channel. Uh, she didn't know what half the movies I rented from Blockbuster were anyway. So, uh, you know, I would watch – I think AMC at that time was still playing sometimes classic movies. Uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, it was called American Movie Classics was the name of the channel. Um, and you know, like on cable, you would catch a lot of reruns of things and that's how movies would become beloved and popular. Um, and now, I, I mean, they still play movies on cable. I still watch them and enjoy doing that. But as people are cutting the cord and if you're going just to Netflix and Hulu and Amazon, those streaming services, like you said, are not super interested in looking backwards. They're more about what's new, what's fresh, what's, uh, you know, exciting. Yeah. You know, it's funny. The way that television worked is that television could create a classic yeah. by its nature. So, for instance, It's a Wonderful Life was not a hit when it was released. It was just it just wasn't. Um, it was it was deem- it was like people were like, oh, this is nice. And then they just kind of, you know, forgot about it. But then it started getting re-aired on television a lot, especially around Christmas. And it became this film that is associated with Christmas by virtue of the way it was by virtue of television, essentially. Um, and the film is great. Like it's, it helps that the film is genuinely good. Um, but it wouldn't, I don't think would have gone as far if not for the way television made it a thing. And the streaming services just don't really, you know, if you're Netflix, you, you're not going to make a thing out of something you don't own because once the license rights expire, then you're screwed. So, and Netflix is seeing that now with television shows, like with Friends and The Office, you know, about to leave, you know, leaving the next couple of years. Um, Netflix is like, oh, shit, (laughs) what do we we do now? And, you know, I I mean, these streaming services are going to, I mean, their solution is let's throw a bunch of money at the problem, Um, which that always works. (laughs) Yeah. There is no, there's no art problem that can't be solved by just throwing a bunch of money at it. Yeah, I'm super curious to see, uh, like, what is the next generation of film geeks look like and what is their uh, breadth of knowledge look like? Because, I mean, that's the other thing is that, like, I've seen a fair number of the classics, but I've not seen everything. There's still a ton of blind spots on my list. And that's not even that's not even delving into the blind spots I have for uh, foreign cinema or classic documentaries. Um and as we start moving forward and as older films are becoming less and less watched, like, you know, that it feels like that gap becomes bigger and bigger. Um, and I'm curious to see, like, what that looks like. Does, like, do people suddenly, like, in 20 years from now, if someone makes a movie and everyone's like, oh, my God, this is a masterpiece. And it's actually just ripping off, like, the apartment or something like that. But not enough people have seen the apartment to acknowledge it. And it's like, oh, this person is, you know, a genius. I don't know. Maybe I'm talking out of my ass here. You're not. You're not. I actually, this is going to get really, uh, 
I'm going to pull something up real quick because this is, this will actually prove my point. Um, also spoilers ahead for the good place. (laughs) (laughs) So there is a play by John Paul Sartre, which came out in 1944. And it's about, um, people who have been locked into a room and then they discover the room that they're being locked in is hell. And does that sound familiar to you? <laughs> it does. Yes. But when, but where's anyone talking about no exit when the good place came out? I don't believe so. Exactly. Now, obviously that was an influence. And I think obviously because, um, you know, my, Michael sure, Mike sure was, you know, Sartre was also a philosopher. Like he was reading a lot of philosophy that, and all that philosophy is part of the good place. Like it's part of the soul of that show. But I think when you're able to sort of recognize these sort of past art forms and their influences, then it's not a matter of like, ah, you're just ripping off this, but saying like, oh, that's cool. You saw this thing, thought about it and then refashioned it and built upon it to make this thing. So creation becomes, you know, a, a way to construct new ideas and new art. And that, that's really exciting. But in order to, to be part of that conversation, you have to understand where it's coming from. And I, I think the thing is, is that people are, are on board with that. Like, I think people who are, for instance, like really passionate about Star Wars, right? Part of that passion is like, well, I read all the novels and I'm reading the comic books and I'm deep in the lore. You're doing the work. You're just doing it on a different path. Like you're just doing it on the path line of the self-contained universe of the art form rather than the broader uh, influences of the medium. Yeah. Of like Flash Gordon and all the stuff that George Lucas was. And the Hidden Fortress and so forth. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, how many people who uh, like call The Dark Knight one of the greatest movies ever made – have have seen Heat, which isn't even even that old of a movie, but and is also a movie that Christopher Nolan talked about a lot as a specific influence on The Dark Knight. Uh, and if you've seen Heat, you're like, oh yeah, like everything from the sound design to the color palette to the way he's shooting the city is very much inspired by that Michael Mann film. Um, but if you haven't seen Heat, it it just kind of seems brand new. And I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. Uh, I think like, it's a little bit of a bad thing because, <laughs> and I'll say why, because someone who will go unnamed, although you'll probably recognize, said when The Dark Knight came out that it was, quote unquote, a cinematic revolution. <laughs> and it's on our list. It's an essential film, we think, but it's not a cinematic revolution. Like a cinematic revolution is something that changes all of cinema. So like Birth of a Nation is a cinematic revolution. Battleship Potemkin is a cinematic revolution. Citizen Kane is a cinematic revolution. The Jazz Singer is a cinematic revolution. The Dark Knight is just a really good superhero film that speaks to the way art was responding to the war on terror. I would honestly say Batman Begins is more of a quote-unquote cinematic revolution than The Dark Knight. It's a, I would because... say it's a genre revolution for sure. Yeah, because it Batman Begins created this idea of the quote-unquote gritty reboot. Um, because before then, I mean, not only were superhero movies were like Brian Singer's X-Men, um, which was more grounded, granted, than like Batman Forever or even Tim, Tim Burton's Batman. And then Sam Raimi's Spider-Man, which was colorful and elevated 
um, but grounded in the emotions. Batman Begins was kind of the the bellwether of like, oh, you could just treat him as if he's like kind of just a military dude. And he gets bruised and hurt. And, you know, uh, Scarecrow doesn't have superpowers. He's just a crazy guy using gas. Um, so and, and that spawned, I mean, you as well as an entertainment journalist working at the time, uh, everything was described as a quote unquote gritty reboot in the vein of Batman Begins. And that's not to say Batman Begins is a better film than The Dark Knight. I don't think it is, but I think it, it may have been a bit more influential uh, in that regard. Yeah, for sure. For sure. But however, you I'd love to go on tangents about The Dark Knight trilogy. We, we, we will always do that. Oh, man, we are about to get it so bad with the new Batman. <laughs> like, I ju- that just dawned on me. Like, I'm, I'm actually, like, I'm excited about it. And then it's like, oh, it's going to get bad. <laughs> like, I'm excited, but it's also going to get real bad because people have such strong opinions about Batman. Mm-hmm. It's really weird. Um, But, yeah, so I, I would say, like, I don't even know where we were going with this. But, oh, basically... <laughs> Where, like, it's good to have this background knowledge so that you have something to build upon when you discuss these things, not to show off and be like, well, actually, that's just a, you know, a version of this, but to see, like, oh, it's cool how that influenced that. And then you take that knowledge and you can sort of see what's, what, what's being, what, what's new and what is simply just uh, being rehashed. Well, and I also like, I mean, in my interview with Bill Hader, he talked about another source of uh, like finding new movies when he was growing up was reading interviews with directors like Martin Scorsese, like Akira Kurosawa, and seeing the films that they name dropped as influences for them or movies that they really liked. And he'd be like, really, that movie? And then he'd go and check it out. And he'd be like, oh, wow, like not only is this movie really cool, but it's clearly a direct influence on this filmmaker's other film. Um, And I did that as well. You know, I would pick up uh, you know, Entertainment Weekly or Empire, um, and read you know these lists of these directors that uh, would make of like their favorite films of all time, and and that would kind of guide me. You know, I was obsessed with Spielberg. Uh, I don't know if I was super into Fincher. I mean, this was like mid '90s, probably not. Um, Considering he was just getting really going in the mid '90s. Yeah, yeah, it was more. I mean, Spielberg was the big one for me, uh, and then obviously um, Scorsese a little bit later on. Um, but that was really cool. And and that's why I thought it was really cool that Bill Hader gave us his own list. Cause you know, if you're a fan of his or of filmmaking and you see movies on his list, like Apocalypto, which I was like, Oh, that's surprising. That's interesting. And, um, you know, it kind of spurs you to go and give that another watch and like, Oh, okay. Huh. This is really, yeah. That's the other thing I would say, like one of the, one of the not shortcomings of our list, but the way the list is designed is it's trying to hit a bunch of major things. So the list is not esoteric. Yeah. Um, it's we, we, we're not, this was not a list and maybe it's a list we'll do one day, but like a list of films that deserve a second watch, because there are definitely been films that are like, were misunderstood at the time they were released. And then there are films that are just, were properly understood in our garbage. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> no, but like there are films that like are really do deserve like a second watch, like, because for whatever reason, they were just not, they didn't really click with people. And I definitely, I certainly think that's a case with comedies. Um, you know, uh, film comedies can, can really blow up. I mean, that's, that's cult film really. When you look at it, like a real cult film, is not a film that is a hit at the box office. It's a hit on home video or on second viewing. And, and that's to me something that is concerning. It's like, what happens to the cult film these days when the means to find it have been, 
diluted, I would say. Like, because back in the day, it's sort of like, so for me, like a film like back in 99, like Fight Club, like, oh, people are talking about this movie Fight Club. I could go to Blockbuster and rent Fight Club and be like, oh, this is a cool film that looked stupid from the trailers because those trailers were bad. Yeah. Um, And Fox didn't know how to market it. Um, so you could discover it that way. But now these days it's like, boy, I sure hope people find pop star. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Um, well, and I did, yeah. I did this big interview with the lonely Island, um, around the time that pop star was about to hit HBO. And I was telling them, I was like, Oh, you know, like, uh, I forget what the film was at the time, but something had gone on HBO and like got a second wind. And I was like, like, um, you know, like you guys, you guys might be able to, uh, this, this might kind of hit, uh, that second win. Oh, it was the man from uncle. That was it. Guy Ritchie's man from uncle hit HBO. And a lot of people caught it that way. And we're talking about it. And I was like, yeah, like, you know, hopefully with pop star going on HBO, a lot of people find it. And that didn't really happen. Uh, and that was a bummer. I'm so like, disappointed you know, in all of you. It's such a good movie. I mean, that movie at least still has wind in its sales. Like the draft Alamo draft house is getting ready to release it back in theaters as like a sing along version, uh, which should be amazing. Cause that movie's so good. But like you and I were just talking on the last podcast about bad times at the El Royale. Like that movie went on HBO. I didn't really see much more chatter. But like, where where else is that movie going to get more lifeblood? Like the home video market has crumbled. Um, people don't watch cable TV, let alone pay cable TV anymore. Really, Netflix is kind of the only one that seems to do stuff like that, and it's really only TV shows. Like Breaking Bad gained its audience by going on Netflix. I think The Good Place sharply rose in audience having gotten on Netflix, but I can't really think of like films that have gone on Netflix and like found a second win that way. The 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 I can think of like maybe like a few documentaries that got some attention that way, but yeah, yeah, it's, it's rare. Yeah. It's rare. And like, so for instance, and now that like Disney owns Hulu, like it, I guess the, the path for something like bad times at the El Royale is like, Oh, it was on HBO. And then we'll ship it off to Hulu. Cause it's Fox, but you know, Hulu is where the, the R rated Disney films go now and yeah. it's going to live on Hulu. And it'll just be part of this weird Hulu content pile. Like Hulu will never draw attention. Hulu isn't going to email you one day and be like, Hey, bad times with the El Royale is a film that you missed and, but it's really good and you should watch it. It's just going to be a thing that exists. Maybe like right before a new Thor comes out, there'll be like five films from Chris Hemsworth. But like, that's about as close as you're going to get. Yeah. Which is, again, is, is kind of why we made this list. Cause where else are you going to get kind of the heads up or, or the curation? Um, and I think that's honestly why it's harder for movies to get made nowadays, because studios can't say like, well, you know, it may bomb at the box office, but at least it, it might find its audience on DVD because no one's buying DVDs anymore. So it's a bummer. I just bum myself out. Yeah. Um, so let's not <laughs> bum ourselves out. I, yeah, I was like, I, I didn't want to like I started to think about it and get sad. No, let's not do that. Um, yeah. So our list is helpful. Um and you know the thing is is like I would say if you are an aspiring film fan you actually do have one resource you have that we didn't have growing up is social media. Like there are so many like film twitter people that like if you like them and you admire them and like care about their opinions and I would say that no one is going to be mad if you like tweet them one day and be like, "Hey, I just finished watching 7 Samurai." 
but I don't really know which Kurosawa films I should watch next. He's made so many. Do you have a recommendation? And they're going to tell you, you know, hey, see X, Y, and Z. Like, no, no one who isn't an asshole isn't going to be like, like, no one should be mad at you for just being like, I value your opinion. Have you seen movies by this director? What else can you recommend? No one's going to be mad about that. So I would say take advantage of the fact that, like, you can just reach out to someone who's who knows about movies and be like, hey, what should I do next? And that's why I love following people like Ryan Johnson and Christopher McQuarrie and James Mangold on Twitter because they just talk openly about their influences, about great films, and I'll also get into kind of the nitty-gritty of the movies that they made. Um, and then watching audio commentaries, I, I would say, is also invaluable. That's something that I've been obsessed with uh, ever since they started putting those on DVDs. Uh, and I've learned so much from watching them, uh, uh, especially the fact that David Fincher is like one of the funniest humans alive. Like he's very <laughs> funny. He is a he is a deadpan wit. Yeah. <laughs> when he gives out Aaron Sorkin's phone number on the social network uh, or, Blu-ray or that when, they have to keep out, or when he uh, he just trashes Ben Affleck for not wearing a different hat on <laughs> yeah. Gone Girl. Yeah, he's very funny. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I would suggest seeking out uh, audio commentaries as well. But I think that's a good point. The social media, social media, sometimes used for good. Yeah, use it, use it for good, folks. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think that's about all we have to say about this list. Unless there's anything else you want to add. Uh, no, I don't think so. I mean, I, I, I think it's kind of fruitless to pick out favorites because I would say all of these are favorites of mine. Like, yeah. if, if I had to pick out like a couple of like, you must watch these. Um, you know. Yeah, I'm trying to think of like, like if for people that are wondering, like a few that came very close to making the cut, but like just we we had to like we 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 capped it at 100. <laughs> oh yeah, what were some of those? The big Lebo- the big Lebowski came very yeah. close um, because it's such a, we really only, we only have one Coen brothers on the list and that's Fargo. I will admit I was anti Lebowski. Um, not because I don't like the film, but I think it's not necessarily indicative of the Coen brothers filmography as a whole. I think Fargo threads that needle of like the deadly serious and dramatic mm-hmm. and, and that dark comedy. Whereas Lebowski is, is more like uh burn after reading where it's just like a very silly comedy. Yes. Yes. Um, another film, I'm trying to think what, Brett, like I said, Breathless did not make the list. Um, yeah. Much to my consternation, because I actually do think Breathless is, to quote unquote, a cinematic revolution, the way it uses editing. And like, it should have been, it should have been on the list. We'll go, we'll go on record. Here we're going over the risk. It should have been on the list. Um, but that being said, when you say it should have been on the list, the question is, is what do you remove? And that becomes a much harder question to answer. Yeah. So. Um, there are some I could say that like are borderline, but I don't want to be like, your pick is bad and you are bad. So I think Zodiac was close to going on there. Little Mermaid, uh, the thin blue line. We considered Iron Man, but I think the Avengers is really all you need in terms of like how it affected cinema. And there's stuff that's like, there's just stuff that's just missing. There's just like, again, you can't get to everything. Like there are no docu there. I don't think there are any documentaries on the list. Um, I think we we included one, but I can't remember which one is. Either way, if we only included one, we still fucked up. (laughs) Does this spinal tap count? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) One and a half. So we have one and a half documentaries. Um, yeah, like it's, again, it's not meant to be complete. Um, I think we could probably do like a hundred documentaries on our own. Um, but you know, again, we did our best. It's a place to start. It is not the ending, you know? Yeah. Um, so watch a lot of movies. 
It's fun. Yeah, it's good. It's good to watch movies. Even if you hate them, it's good to watch them. Try and, like, I would suggest, I mean, I know that, like, there are so many, there's so much content vying for your attention, and I'm as guilty of this as anyone else in terms of just, like, I just watch a ton of TV just because there's so much good TV. Yeah. Um, but, like, I would suggest try and fit in one older movie a week. Like That's what, I, yeah, that's, and that's what list. I try to do, like, with Criterion. Like, I'll watch one movie, like, on a Sunday morning or something. Yeah. 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 I mean, and like I've interviewed Bill Hader a number of times and he consistently will tell me like, oh, last night I was watching Yojimbo or last night I was watching whatever. And it seems like, you know, if Bill Hader can find the time in his day to go home at night and watch one or two classic movies a night, you can probably do it. You can probably squeeze it in. Yeah. Give it a shot. Yeah. All right. Well, with that, let's move on to recently watched. What have you seen lately, Adam? Um, so I saw a film that is coming out this Friday, I believe, September 27th, uh, called Judy, uh, which you and I both missed at TIFF. Uh, and uh, we'll try and talk a bit more about TIFF on another on our next podcast because I know some of you uh, were unable to listen to the audio. And again, we apologize. Um, but I caught a press screening of Judy when I got back. Uh, Renee Zellweger plays Judy Garland, but it takes place in 1969. So it's six months before her death. And, uh, you know, she's out of money and she's, you know, addicted to um, these barbiturates and uh, she's clearly an alcoholic. And she's offered this chance to go to London for a five week run of concerts. Um, And she's just, you know, having a struggle. She's struggling with. Her depression, she's struggling with her career, she's struggling with her alcoholism and substance abuse, and the film has these flashbacks flashbacks to her as a young girl shooting The Wizard of Oz, um, and uh, which are super heartbreaking um, as she's dealing with the head of the studio at the time in a very, very troubling relationship. Um, and you know what? Like This movie's pretty good. I was expecting it to be a pretty standard, boring, by-the-numbers biopic. I mean... First and foremost, Renee Zellweger is kind of revelatory in this movie. Like, she's incredible. Um, It's one of those performances where the actor just completely disappears into the role. But it's not this, like, oh, yeah, they're putting on an affectation just to be, you know, uh, just to kind of grab attention. It feels very lived in. And it's, uh, it's really sad. I mean, Julie Garland is someone, as you see in the flashbacks who was a young girl and she was essentially controlled by the studio. She was told she was not allowed to eat because they didn't want her to gain weight. They were giving her uppers to keep her awake to shoot for like 18 hours a day. And then they were making make her take a sleeping pill at night um, to try and get her to sleep. And they were kind of like modulating her entire life with these pills. Um, and that would happen throughout her career. And she had multiple um, divorces uh, that were a little messy um, from men and had not the best luck with men and, you know, had these these kids that she loved uh, more than anything. But, you know, she's just she's a woman who's trying to uh, a woman who has been used and abused by Hollywood and Hollywood has no uh, need for her anymore because she's in her 50s uh, in the film uh, or maybe in her 40s. Um, and is struggling. And I found it really interesting as a story about Judy Garland, but also just about 
so many other actresses who have been used and abused by the Hollywood system. Um, you know, these young ingenues who come in and Hollywood tells them, you know, like, oh, you can't gain a single pound and we need you to do this and this and this and burn the candle at both ends, run them dry. And then as soon as the first wrinkle starts to show or as soon as they start to gain a little bit on their waistline, they're shoved aside for the next young thing. And then, you know, their life sometimes is irreparably ruined and it's incredibly sad. Uh, so I found that aspect of the film really interesting, and uh, I think it doesn't necessarily shy away from um, kind of the dark side of that. This isn't a film that ends on a super-duper happy, uplifting note and changes history just to make it uh, more interesting as a fictional narrative. <clears throat> Bohemian Rhapsody. Um, so I enjoyed it. I liked it. I would suggest seeing it if you're interested in uh, – uh, in kind of that classic Hollywood system uh, or the life of Judy Garland or just seeing a really great performance by Renee Zellweger that will almost certainly win her Oscar. Another Oscar, I should say. And hopefully a more deserved Oscar than her Cold Mountain Oscar, which... Kurt Martin. Kurt Martin. Good afternoon, Kurt Martin. you doing that, Kurt Martin? Oh, dear. That I'm was... going to rewatch it. I'm going to rewatch You're it. You're going to rewatch it? It's, I... a, it's playing on like Cinemax or Showtime or something now, and so I've got it recorded, and I'm going to rewatch it. Good, good luck with that. Godspeed. <laughs> um, for my recently watched, um, we, my wife and I are, I've seen all of Breaking Bad, but she does, she hasn't. So we're sort of moving to the end of it. And I'm glad because it's, it, it worked, the timing worked out because now as we come to the end of Breaking Bad, the movie is, is right around the corner. Um, and it's been a really great experience rewatching it. Breaking Bad holds up very well, um, especially once you know the entire arc of the series. Um, not that the arc was ever a secret. I mean, um, Vince Gilligan always said what it was, but to know the details of how it plays out is really striking. Um, and I definitely, you know, on this latest viewing, uh, Walt is definitely more of a clear villain than he was before. I think our audience, like when you, when you spend time with him week by week, year by year, his villainy is so kind of slow and creeping that you don't really notice it as much or because you're still sympathetic for the man that he was. Like it moves at such a, at a slow pace by virtue of just being a weekly series that you just, there are thing, despicable things that he does that you just accept because you're carrying, oh, well, I've spent the last three years with this guy and I know why he's doing this. And yeah, that was a bad thing, but it's not the worst thing he could have done or he had to do it or, and, but when you watch it, like when you sort of binge it, even though like we've been, this, this, our watch has been sort of spread out over the course of a year or so, um, when it's condensed, he, you really just sort of see Walt as sort of this, um, figure of toxic masculinity, someone who hates to be questioned, someone whose pride is always at the forefront of his mind. Um, someone who doesn't really care that much about other people who doesn't have a lot of affection in his heart, um, who puts his work above all else. Um, and it's really sort of watching sort of those short, his, those flaws that are apparent in the very first episode kind of curdle into, uh, this drug kingpin, this, this total villain, uh, and it's a really fascinating uh, watch to sort of see him go through that. Um, and I really do think that Breaking Bad will just sort of endure in a way that I think other shows may fall off. Um, I was thinking recently about The West Wing and how that used to be like one of my favorite shows. And now I see it as sort of like more of a tribute to 
third way Clintonian politics rather than <laughs> something that represents something real. And also the endless um, patriarchy that Aaron Sorkin ingests, injects into his fucking work. <laughs> I will not stand for this revisionist West Wing history. <laughs> the West Wing is good and has always been good. Suddenly now everyone's like, oh, the West Wing is problematic and it always has been. It's like, come on, let us have something that's I'm sorry, man. I just I think about it and I'm like, there are some shortcomings with it. There are some things about it. Like it's not that the West Wing has always been bad. It's just the West Wing is dated. It just feels yeah. a little dated. I don't disagree. And I think what the West Wing as is indicative of all of Aaron Sorkin's writing is incredibly romantic. And I don't mean that in like a, you know, uh, romantic relationship way, but like longing for a kind of a sweet, perfect little um, way in which things work. And I don't necessarily think, cause I never took it as a hundred percent fact. Although no. I do know that a lot of politicians at the time were saying that like, wow, nothing uh, has more accurately captured what it's actually like to work in uh, politics than the West Wing. But I also think that politics have changed tremendously since Right. I think era. probably modern politics today more resemble Veep than the West yes. Wing. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. So, yeah. But uh, Breaking Bad, always worth watching. If you want to, I'm sure you could probably binge the hell out of it before El Camino arrives. I'm curious how Mad Men holds up because Mad Men and Breaking Bad were always held up as like these two, like, iconic television series but it feels like breaking bad has more longevity i think breaking bad is just i think breaking bad is just the easier show to watch to be honest i know Mad Men has its fans and but Mad Men is to me kind of like the sopranos where it's like yes i respect what you are doing here but at yeah. no point did i ever enjoy it like like and I, like you know even when when Mad Men or the sopranos are being funny they're like and now we are going to have a funny moment whereas like the comedy is just organic in breaking bad yeah so it's just more fun to watch too yeah it's just it's more fun it's more electric it's it's a thriller like that's the thing at the end of the day it's a thriller that runs for 5 seasons whereas Mad Men and Sopranos are drama <laughs> yeah, they are serious dramas about complicated men. Yeah. So. All right. Well, thank you all so much for listening. If you want to keep up with this podcast, you should follow us on Twitter. Adam, where can we find you on Twitter? At Adam Chitwood. And you can find me at Matt Goldberg. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back with you next week. <laughs>